Mr. President, are you confident that Joe Biden now remembers the importance of France as an ally? We will see. I just believe in, in facts. I do hope, I do think it's feasible. I do think it's uh, more productive for both of us. I will see. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, coming to you this week from a secret location outside Brussels, where political managers are plotting to conquer the world, one post-it note at a time. And you just heard French President Emmanuel Macron answering a question from Politico's own David Herzenhorn about whether France and the United States can patch things up after the big blow-up over that scuppered submarine deal. Macron was one of 27 EU leaders who met in Slovenia this week for a summit with their counterparts from the Western Balkans. But EU leaders also used the occasion to talk among themselves about Europe's place in the world, its defence capabilities and about rising energy prices. We'll dive into that in just a moment with Politico's summit team. And later in the podcast, our chief technology correspondent, Mark Scott, tells us the story of investigative reports he's been working on about the hidden side of EU lobbying. So stay tuned for that. But first, let's get to our podcast panel. Let's switch to Slovenia now and link up for our podcast panel with two of our political reporters who have been out there reporting on uh, various pieces of summitry. Uh, let's put it that way. Uh, hi to Chief Brussels Correspondent David Herzenhorn. Hi, David. Hello. And to Lily Beyer, a reporter in our Brussels politics team. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. So let's uh, get right to it. Maybe just set the scene for us, uh, David. Kind of two back-to-back events, if you like, a dinner of EU leaders on Tuesday evening, followed by a summit of EU leaders with their Western Balkan counterparts on Wednesday. But where has all of this been taking place? Uh, Paint a picture, if you like. Sure. So we're here in Slovenia, which is quite a green country, and the leaders gathered outside of the capital, Ljubljana, about 45-minute drive uh, into the hills at a conference center in Berdo near a castle, but they were actually in a more modern conference center. They had uh, an initial gathering uh, by the castle itself on Tuesday evening, but came in for what is supposed to be the centerpiece of Slovenia's uh, presidency of the Council of the EU, a summit focused on the Western Balkans, uh, the third summit in recent years on that uh, topic, the neighborhood. But layered onto that came this dinner discussion on strategic defense issues, the relationship with China, Afghanistan, all coming off of a series of recent events that really left folks in Brussels and other diplomatic capitals unsettled. The messy, messy withdrawal from Afghanistan led by the U.S., followed then by this surprise announcement by President Joe Biden of a new strategic alliance in the Indo-Pacific with Australia and the U.K. And that involved the cancellation of a giant submarine contract that the French had to build boats for the Australians, infuriated Emmanuel Macron. So he was kind of a main actor at this dinner, everybody waiting to hear from him. And he played it for dramatic effect, kind of taking a page from Vladimir Putin showing up last, demonstrably last of all of the leaders coming in late and then stopping to talk to us as he went in. Right, David, you grabbed them for a quick word. And as you say that what's really kind of come into sharp focus uh, as a result of all these recent events is the transatlantic relationship and more particularly France's relationship with the U.S., Antony Blinken has been in France this week trying to do damage limitation there. How did Emmanuel Macron seem to you or what did he say to you about the state of the French-US relationship and its prospects going forward? Well, he clearly had messages that he wanted to deliver. 
And I had a sense that Macron, who, of course, loves to speak in French and native language more than anyone else, but his English is quite good, that he would want to deliver a message in English. So once he was done speaking to our French colleagues, I stopped him and said, Mr. President, are you confident that Joe Biden now remembers the importance of France as an ally? And he was ready for it. He said, we'll see. We will see. <laughs> I, I just believe in, in facts. I do hope. I do think it's feasible. I do think it's uh, more productive for both of us. I will see. And I think we, we scheduled to, to discuss together mid-October. We will catch up during the G20. And I think it would be the right occasion to see how we can re-engage very concretely. Um, my point is not, uh, honestly, I don't, uh, it's not an issue about words or perception. It's an issue about facts and what to do together. Did you have enough support from the Europeans? Right. And how was the discussion in general, as far as we can gather, that dinner discussion, which ranged, as far as we can tell, over quite a wide range of topics? Were there any kind of takeaways from that dinner? There were a few. I mean, certainly uh, this issue is weighing heavily on all of them. And the question is not just uh, on the relationship with the United States, but really on what's known as strategic autonomy, the question of whether the EU should build its own military and uh, strategic defense capabilities. Some folks who have been resistant countries that have been long resistant to this worry that that would undermine NATO, it would undermine the relationship with the US, which they trust, especially in the East, to provide security guarantees. Now, this dinner was tough to cover. I uh, kept Lily and I up quite late because, of course, all these dinners are closed up and confidential. But in this case, they were asked to leave their phones outside. And the sense we had afterwards from some of the leaders as they came out, and we maybe outlasted security by waiting until the very end, it was after midnight when they finally started emerging, was that in fact these divisions persist. What the organizers, the council president Charles Michel and his team are happy about is a sense that they're starting to convince folks that the two things are not contradictory, that the EU could build its own military capabilities while not undermining NATO, that that could happen in concert with a stronger relationship with the United States. But it's not clear if, in fact, those two things can exist side by side. Well, what have they been doing for the last couple of decades? It's not clear everybody is persuaded. And so they opted for what uh, the Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte told us was an and-and approach. The EU should build its strategic autonomy and tighten its relationship with the U.S. and have a new statement of cooperation and partnership with NATO. All of the above, trying to keep everybody on board. But we know that's easier said than done. Right. And we certainly got some signals, I think, from at least some of the Eastern European leaders that they, well, let's say they made it very clear they certainly value the transatlantic relationship. And I think at least some of them remain to be convinced about strategic autonomy and the, and the kind of French vision on this. But let's perhaps uh, jump forward now to the main topic of the summit today, as we record uh, Wednesday evening. And that was this uh, gathering of the EU leaders with their counterparts from the Western Balkans, uh, the six countries that want to join the EU at uh, some stage in the future. Some of them are already on that path. Some of them are waiting to begin and some of them are, are further out again. Before we get to the summit itself, uh, Lily, I wanted to first talk about a story that you and our colleague Zosha Wanat published uh, in the days leading up to the summit on the work of the European Commission's point man for this region, the Commissioner for Enlargement, Oliver Verhey. And the story uh, which you published was based on multiple interviews, internal documents. Can you give us just a summary of your conclusions from that reporting? So what we found after talking to officials and, and looking at documents is that Oliver Vadhai 
the former Hungarian ambassador to the EU, who is now a commissioner. Uh, he was nominated by uh, Prime Minister Viktor Orban for the job. He's definitely someone who's incredibly active in his job. But what we found was that part of what his cabinet has been doing is trying to water down references to uh, rule of law concerns in the region, concerns about uh, human rights standards uh, in the Western Balkans and also in Turkey, and specifically also really push forward the candidacy of Serbia. And this is um, especially interesting because Viktor Orban, the prime minister of Hungary, is very close with the leadership in uh, neighboring Serbia. They do a lot of projects together. They visit each other all the time. And Hungary is a huge proponent of uh, Serbia's accession. The challenge, of course, is that Serbia hasn't been making progress on rule of law criteria. And a lot of watchdogs would tell you that over the past years, they have actually seen more problems when it comes to rule of law standards in the country. Um, so this has created a lot of tension especially in the department that Varhai himself oversees, DG Nir, the Directorate General that deals with these enlargement and neighborhood issues. There are a lot of experts who work there, civil servants, who became concerned with what they were seeing coming from Varhai's cabinet. Right, and, and this, the overall sense seems to be that um, he's not playing with a straight bat, that when he does these evaluations, when he kind of marks the homework, if you like, of the different candidate countries, uh, Serbia gets good grades even when they're not deserved, and other countries, by contrast, don't perhaps get all the help or kind of boosting uh, that they feel they deserve and that others would say they deserve. And so this is creating a kind of a situation in the region where also these, these other countries are feeling that they're not you know, being treated fairly. And as we heard from some officials, there is a fear there that that means there could be backsliding in the other countries because they feel they're not getting a fair shake here. Let's, in the spirit of fairness, note what Oliver Verhey says about these uh, various allegations and also what uh, his boss, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, has said following the publication of your article, which is uh, very detailed and gives uh, you know very specific allegations backed up by documents and interviews. Uh, so Commissioner Vadhei has defended his record. He has insisted that he uh, is supportive of uh, the accession of all of the Western Balkan countries and that uh, he also supports you know rule of law standards. And Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said today when asked about this at a press conference here in Slovenia that she has confidence in the commissioner. All commissioners of uh, the College of Commissioners have my full confidence. Uh, Serbia has come a long way, but of course there's still a lot to Okay, do. well, I think we will let uh, readers judge for themselves. We'll be sure to include a link to the story by Zosia and you in our podcast notes, and people can read and, and judge for themselves. So let's get to the substance of the summit, uh, David, and switch back to you. I believe a declaration was issued as part of the summit. But what would you say is the overall mood or takeaways that you would have from this meeting of the leaders of the EU and the leaders of the Western Balkans? The mood was soggy, in part because it was pouring rain, uh, and in part because some of these Western Balkans partners are feeling pretty downtrodden after years of working toward EU membership and feeling like, you know, they're sort of uh, rolling this uh, stone uphill and watching it roll back down again. There is no forward motion for especially uh, North Macedonia and Albania, which have gotten essentially the official green light to begin accession negotiations 
with the EU, but lots of politics at play. At first, it was resistance uh, from the French, uh, some resistance from the Dutch. Now we have a political situation in Bulgaria, where Bulgaria is holding this up because of disputes uh, with North Macedonia. You, Andrew, can tell us more about the historic origins uh, there. But ironic that just a few years ago, it was Bulgaria that called a summit just like this in Sofia, where they announced that enlargement was back on the radar. And actually, it was quite a successful summit. And they did, in fact, return attention to the idea that you know the EU has long wanted to bring these Western Balkans neighbors into the club. Ursula von der Leyen, the commission president, emphasized that quite pointedly today at that closing news conference, saying that you know, the Western Balkans are part of Europe. First of all, the Western Balkans is part of the same Europe as the European Union. That the EU will not be complete without them. And the European Union is not complete without the Western Balkans. So my commission... That her commission wants these accession talks to go forward and to begin, and yet she knows full well there's quite a lot of disappointment. There is no set dates for that to happen. There were some sideline meetings with the Bulgarians hoping to knock some stuff loose. But of course, there are elections that have to happen there. Really a sense of, of some frustration. There were folks trying to put a positive spin on it, saying the EU is making investments up to $30 billion. There's partnership on issues involving roaming. One of the EU's favorite things, right, is come back to ending roaming charges across the EU. And they want to bring uh, the Balkans into that as well. But overall, an undercurrent of frustration. At the same time, the Slovenian presidency is very proud. They actually got the word enlargement. This shows you how low the bar has been set. At the enlargement uh, summit, the word enlargement appears in the declaration one time in bold, but one time. Uh, there were folks trying to even keep it out. So it gives you a sense of just how tough uh, this road has been for those who support bringing these countries into the European Union. Right. And as you say, there's sort of dividing lines within the European Union. There's a, the kind of enlargement skeptics and there are those that are much more in favour of, of getting these countries in as soon as possible. But uh, the key issue with uh, enlargement in the European Union, as with so many things, is that it requires unanimity to make any big moves so one country can really hold things up. And that's the case with Bulgaria at the moment, uh, which is blocking the start of those talks with North Macedonia. And the EU, for the moment, at least treats North Macedonia and Albania as kind of one case, wants to start those membership talks with both of them at the same time. Serbia and Montenegro are already kind of in the process, but that process has been going on for years and doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon, that's for sure. And then you have Kosovo and Bosnia Herzegovina who aspire to join the EU but are, are really further back and haven't been given uh, even the green light to begin talks. Lily, I don't know if you've had a chance to gather some, some reaction from the leaders from the Western Balkans. How have they interpreted the summit and the statement that's come out of it? I think it's been interesting to look both at what people in the region and uh, some of the EU delegations have been communicating because, as mentioned, the bar had been set very, very low ahead of the summit. So people arrived not really expecting much. That was my sense. But in the room, apparently, there was somewhat of a positive vibe, according to multiple officials. But of course, the concern and I think the frustration both from some EU governments and Western Balkan officials is that despite any sort of goodwill, we're not seeing concrete movement on enlargement as a result of this summit. And that, in the eyes of a lot of officials, is the problem. 
Yeah, and I wonder one one thing I I wonder that might change the picture, and we'll we'll wait to see, is whether the United States decides to get more involved in the region again. Because speaking as somebody who used to cover the region fairly closely, generally when things move in that region under Western pressure, it's when the US and the EU act together. We know that Joe Biden has a long history of involvement in the Balkans, has taken a close interest in it over the years. And so I guess one of the questions here is, will the the US kind of get in behind the pro-enlargement crowd, perhaps push Bulgaria to lift that block and and get things moving again? And of course, there's bigger strategic issues here, um, because that is the region which is, you know, right in the EU's neighbourhood. It's surrounded by EU countries, and there are other Uh, major players trying to exert more influence there, uh, including China, Russia, Gulf Arab states, Turkey. So for a lot of EU officials anyway, there's very much a case of being engaged in that region, being in the EU's own self-interest. But David, I don't know if you have any sense of whether you think that the US might get more involved here. Well, this has started, Andrew. You're exactly right. I mean, Joe Biden called Ursula von der Leyen uh, this week on Monday evening ahead of this summit, specifically to remind her, as if she needed reminding, that the United States is in favor of EU enlargement for the Western Balkans. Of course, that's easy for him to say, right? The right. Folks They're not joining the U.S. Say, well, go ahead and make them the 51st through 56 states if you love yeah. them so much. You know, do it yourself, pal. But um, he did make that phone call and did reiterate that point. There, of course, is that's just the beginning. They can come in and there have been uh, U.S. diplomats in the region uh, making clear that they do want to help ease some of the tensions we've seen. In fact, as these um, discussions play out, there's always a little bit of tension there where you start to see folks wanting to position themselves as best as they can for whatever comes next. Mm. Fascinating stuff. Uh, I think we'll leave it there and let uh, you guys get back to more reporting and writing. Lily, David, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And now, right after this short break, we'll bring you a fascinating look at the hidden side of lobbying in Brussels. Stay with us. Now we're going to dive into an investigative series of political stories by our chief technology correspondent, Mark Scott. The series is called Dark News, and it explores the hidden world of undercover EU lobbying. You can read all of the articles on our website, politico.eu, and we'll be sure to link to them in our show notes. But first, let's turn it over to Mark to give you a taste of what his reporting has uncovered. Our product, www.eureporter.co, is a Brussels-based European multimedia online platform providing news and video comment on EU and world affairs in 58 world languages, including... At first glance, EU Reporter just looks like another media outlet reporting from Brussels on the European Union. The website publishes articles on the European Commission's latest proposals, analyses of global events, and provided almost daily updates on the COVID-19 pandemic. But the company's materials tell a very different story. As made clear in the glitzy video you just heard, EU reporter, owned by a former British television executive who has plied his trade in the Brussels bubble of policymakers, journalists and lobbyists for two decades, pitches itself to prospective clients eager to gain traction within the EU's halls of power. It's a business model which, quote, offers the placement of positive news stories and editorial comment related to them, and quote, to use EU reporter to influence, end quote. 
Yet among its clients are the Russian energy giant Lukoil, Ukrainian state-owned nuclear energy company Energoatom, and the Russian state nuclear energy company Rosatom. And as the geopolitical winds began to turn against it last year, the Chinese telecommunications giant Huawei needed a friend in Brussels. It found one in EU Reporter. While EU Reporter is not alone in offering companies and governments a paid-for platform to promote their views, such as Politico itself, what sets them apart is that it presents its coverage as straight news while secretly facilitating political influence campaigns without disclosing who is paying for or who is behind that coverage. Welcome to the murky world of EU lobbying dressed up as journalism. A likely victory for the ruling party, even before the first votes have been cast or counted. With reporters accredited at the European institutions like the Commission, and connections to a press club just a stone's throw away from the Commission's headquarters, EU Reporter, owned by the former British television executive Colin Stevens, is just one of a network of EU-focused websites portraying themselves as media organisations. Stevens does not appear to have a particular agenda. He made it very clear to Politico that he does not work directly as a lobbyist, but his media organisation has provided a number of companies and governments with a space to publish paid-for content as straight news articles without disclosing those connections. One article, written by Stevens, praised Russian energy giant Lukoil for its work on climate change, and another championed Huawei in a political standoff in Belgium. Neither of these articles mentioned any commercial relationship that EU reporter had with those organisations. Stevens told me that, quote, it is absolutely untrue that our business model is to sell political lobbying masquerading as journalism. He also told me that, quote, our readers are politicians and influencers, and in the same way as Politico, we market EU Reporter as a means of reaching their audience, end quote. But after I did a painstaking review of his site, I found that only a handful of articles about the clients of EU Reporter were labelled as, quote, sponsored posts, end quote. And that the majority of the articles about those clients on the site ran with no disclaimers at all. Packages range from companies and governments writing their own stories for the outlet to lengthy made-to-order subscriptions, with prices starting at €1,000 for each sponsored article. Discounts were also available to those who bought in bulk, cheap compared with what most rivals offer in Brussels. Among the clients of EU Reporter are two embassies in Brussels. Although EU Reporter does not list which embassies or governments are among its clients, Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan have both received extensive positive coverage over the years. In the weeks before the elections in Kazakhstan, held on the 11th of January 2021, the country's top diplomat to the EU was given her own, quote, ambassador's corner, end quote, a 48-minute long video interview. The outlet has also run positive news articles from a newspaper called the Astana Times, a paper with ties to the authoritarian regime. Politico could not categorically verify whether Kazakhstan's government was an EU reporter client, and Stevens declined to say who the site's clients were. The first elections in the world in 2021... Tory MacDonald, who is part journalist, part development executive at EU Reporter, travelled to the Central Asian country earlier this year, nominally as a foreign election monitor and reporter. The headline of her article for the publication stated that the Kazakh election had been, quote, free and fair, end quote. Kazakhstan. An EU reporter was invited to join a mission of international observers. 
Free elections and the opening of Kazakh society means that the EU looks to Kazakhstan as a reliable partner for the future. This is Tori McDonald from EU... And an associated video included an interview with Thierry Mariani, a French MEP for the far-right Identity and Democracy Party, who praised Kazakhstan's democratic credentials. Well, I think uh, there is two countries who are very interesting in Central Asia. Uh, it's Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. And uh, Kyrgyzstan is a democratic system, but in this moment with a little crisis. Kazakhstan is uh, maybe... It's go slower but deeper and uh, when we see the yet that assessment stands in stark contrast to that of the organization for security and cooperation in europe or osce an international body that oversees election integrity worldwide the osce condemned kazakhstan's vote saying there was a lack of competition among political parties and limited transparency on how voters had gone to the polls that criticism did not make it into EU reporters' dispatches, however. Stevens told Politico that he may have altered the headline of that article if he had read the OSCE's take on the Kazakh election. In 2021, Thierry Mariani, the French MEP who had appeared in the site's fawning coverage of the Kazakhstan elections, was blacklisted, along with seven other MEPs, from participating in international election observation trips after he travelled to Astana and another vote in Russian-occupied Crimea. Mariani did not respond to our request for comment. EU Reporter does not operate in a vacuum. Its operations have relied on politicians, diplomats and policymakers from within the Brussels bubble and beyond who have provided them with content and, unwittingly, a veneer of legitimacy. It's been very easy to be falsely transparent and to have this kind of very nice website and a few activities on a few big names. But when it comes to actually knowing what's happening behind, it's it's very difficult, uh, whether impossible. That is Alexander Alaphilippe, co-founder of the EU Disinfo Lab, a Brussels-based non-profit organization that tracks online influence campaigns. This uh, first layer of respectability can help to actually appear as legitimate and then, like, everything that you publish is actually looking very good as, oh, I saw something because that's an NGO. So who has this NGO? I don't know, but it's an NGO. So it's a reliable voice. Unlike in the United States, for example, where people working on behalf of foreign governments must register their interests, no such requirements exist when it comes to entities lobbying EU institutions. As a reporter, one question we should all be asking ourselves is why is anyone hiding the fact that this is paid-for content online? For Philippe, the association between EU policymakers and undisclosed lobbying efforts that has taken place over the course of years with little, if any, blowback represents a cautionary tale of how influence can sometimes make itself felt in the Brussels bubble. This confusion between influence, lobbying, private interest, public interest without any strong transparency requirement is actually very symptomatic of Brussels. Be sure to catch the latest and final piece in Politico's dark news series on politico.eu. It's headlined The Web of Connections Behind Brussels Lobbying. And we'll also link to it in our show notes. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe or follow us via any podcast app. And if you like the podcast, tell a friend or colleague or anyone you think might be interested in keeping up with European politics and hopefully having a little bit of fun while they're at it. 
Remember, you can always send us feedback directly. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. This week's episode included audio from Radio Free Europe and original music by Lucas Kotkamp. Thanks this week to Lucas and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening.